Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a conversation with director Paul Schrader about two of his recent features, First Reformed and The Card Counter. We were delighted to have the filmmaker recently join us in anticipation of the opening of his latest feature, the NYFF 60 Main Slate selection, Master Gardener, now playing in our theaters. For nearly half a century, Schrader has crafted a personal and provocative body of work typified by an obsessive focus on moral decay, isolation, and self-redemption across various dispirited pockets of the United States. Rounding out an era-delineating thematic trilogy that began with First Reformed and The Card Counter, Master Gardner continues what the writer-director has referred to as his man-in-a-room movies, with a startling tale of dormant violence and the possibility of regeneration. This Thursday, June 1st, marks the opening of the 22nd edition of Open Road's New Italian Cinema. Presented with Cinecita, Open Roads is the only screening series to offer North American audiences a diverse and extensive lineup of contemporary Italian films. Save with the purchase of three tickets or more with the 3 Plus Film Package, or see more and save with all access passes, available for $89 for the general public and $45 for students. This year's edition again strikes a balance between emerging talents and esteemed veterans, commercial and independent fare, and outrageous comedies, gripping dramas, and captivating documentaries. Get your tickets now at filmlink.org slash openroads. Now please enjoy the conversation between Trader and FLC assistant programmer Maddie Whittle. I love that song. Emily Lou Harris put it on her 10 best songs of the year list, which uh, was a surprise, and and it was very flattering. So excited to have you here, Paul. It's really a a pleasure and an honor. Um, We welcomed you in the fall for New York Film Festival, um, and I think, uh, as I said in my introduction, being able to bring you back specifically to talk about this trilogy of films uh, in a really concentrated way um, is very exciting. So thank you uh, for joining us. Um, Just to dive right in, I want to start by asking you about sort of your philosophy regarding calling these three films a trilogy. You're, You're very much an auteur. You've dealt in themes and and sort of structural preoccupations of over the course of your career but these these films come together in a way that's maybe more coherent as a as a sort of yeah um because obviously it starts with taxi driver and it moves on american jiggle and light sleeper and the walker but then i ended up doing three in a row uh and I didn't realize it was a trilogy until I was telling somebody about the idea for this one. And they said to me, it's a trilogy. And I thought, well, I said, well, no, 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 it's not. It's not. Yes, yes, it kind of is because of certain similarities all three scripts had. And I knew about the similarity when I was writing this one. So I said, uh, 
so I, I acknowledged it as a kind of post facto trilogy, in the same way they now talk about a Bergman trilogy, and Bergman never really intended those three films to be a trilogy. And uh, and then it, saying it was a trilogy, of course, then gave me an excuse to stop. <laughs> because, you know, critics love trilogies, but they hate tetralogies. <laughs> so now I, I've done that. I can do something else. I, I was reading a, a, an interview uh, that you did with Film Comment back in the 70s, um, prior to your, uh, the, the start of your directing work. Um, and in the interview, you talk about Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver as sort of an American iteration of a, the European existential hero that we see in, in existential literature. And I, in this trilogy, I, I see such a sort of pointed interest in the Americanness of these three men. Uh, and so could you just speak well, about that? What I meant by that, and it's still true, is a tradition which Taxi Driver struck, uh, sprung from was uh, the existential tradition of the 20th century, starting with Dostoevsky, the underground man. And these were solipsistic, monocular views of one person, uh, whereas opposed to the traditional novels, which had been societal, about a cloth and fabric of society, this is about just one person, usually a man. You know, so it was uh, Sartre and Mussel and Camus, you know, mother died yesterday, or was it the day before, the first lines of La Tranger. So when I had the idea for Taxi Driver, I knew that it wasn't an American tradition, even though it was an American guy. And I reread in the European, European fiction because I said that's really where this character comes from. And, uh, and I think one of the reasons that film has had longevity is because everybody knew he was all around us, but nobody had labeled him yet uh, because he wasn't from American movies. He was from European literature. And then, but as soon as he appeared in American movies, people said, oh, I know that guy. Uh, so in the same way, this tradition continues on with these journal writers. Uh, these lonely men uh, who are dealing with various degrees of a stated, unstated past. Um, and uh, what I think really, what these three films have in common, the reason why I'm willing to go by that rubric you know, they're all about guys in a room writing. I like that. Um, <laughs> they're all monotone. Um, you know, very recessive characters who have something they're hiding from. And um, when I was writing this one, I said, you know, in First Reformed, Oh, this one I mean, Master Gardener. Uh, when, when I was writing, and first of all, I said, you know, this guy is really trying to touch with God. And God won't talk to him. 
But he's so close. He's so close. He can reach right over here. If he reaches far enough, he can touch the other world, the spiritual world. I said, how can I show that these characters are really on the edge of spirituality, but they can't get there? And then I thought, well, I'll have them levitate. I'll just have them rise up in one scene and just float. Just to say to the viewer, this is how close they are to the spiritual world. And so then I, I did it again in uh, this film, in the, in the Christmas display, and, uh, in card color. And then Master Gardener, I did it again with the garden, where it all comes alive. So um, they, all three films have the journal writer, they have the room, they have the occupation, they have the magic sequence, and then they have the coming together at the end. So uh, that, that's my excuse for calling it a trilogy. <laughs> uh, in terms of the two films that we saw this evening, uh, First Reformed and The Card Counter, uh, there's a particular interest in uh, or sort of treatment of the U.S. military specifically. In, in uh, First Reformed, it's more oblique. It's... In, it's um, you know, uh, Reverend Toller's relationship with his son, uh, who he lost, uh, and in The Card Counter, obviously, it's um, tells own memories and own experiences. Well, ideally, you would like not to use flashbacks because you would like the viewer to create his own or her own flashbacks. So in Taxi Driver, you knew that this guy was in the military because he had a military jacket, King Kong Company, and he had a USMC shirt. But in, otherwise, Vietnam was never mentioned. But then all the reviews of the article, I mean, and all the historical mentions of that film from 50 years ago always mentioned about the Viet, Vietnam vet, Travis Mickle. It's not in the text. It's not there. But it was the text provides you with the ability to read that in. That, that, I think, is the optimum way. In First Reformed, I didn't feel I needed to go to flashbacks because if he just says, you know, my story, you know, that uh, I persuaded my son to go in the military and my wife left me because of it. And, uh, and But then in this one, in Card Counter, I thought you know, I needed, we needed a little more. Uh, he does talk about Abu Ghraib, but I said, you know, you, you somehow need to visualize this, not the real Abu Ghraib, but the nightmare of Abu Ghraib, you know, the hallucination of Abu Ghraib, and that, that can't be conveyed by the viewer's imagination of the, the hallucinatory aspect. So that's why I did uh, an actual flashback. Uh, but not much. You know, less is more in that area. I think um, in sort of the, the flip side of the the preoccupation with uh, violence and, and sort of these aggressive forces, um, these films all propose an answer to this problem of loneliness and alienation and the need for punishment and redemption through sex or through a sexual connection or um, you know the, a particular kind of connecting with another person is do you see that as sort of um, an answer to 
the forces that are on the sort of military side of the equation? Well, there's, a, there's an arc. You know, it starts with the purgation of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Blood must be spilt. A sacrifice must be had, you know. And you must be part of that sacrifice. Uh, and so the ending of Taxi Driver is the blood is spilt. Then gradually as the films go on, the it mutates to blood is spilt, but then there is still a human connection. And finally, in Master Gardener, no blood is spilt. And there is an even more romantic connection. So that is the arc going from the young man's, uh, you know, as I said before, the ending song in Master Gardener is the lyric is, I don't want to leave this world until I say I love you. And when I made Taxi Driver, I was feeling I don't want to leave this world until I say fuck you. <laughs> and now I'm saying I don't want to leave this world until I say I love you. So that t- t- takes 50 years, but it's a... <laughs> Switching gears just a little bit, um, I, I think, but not, not totally unrelated. I think um, in the trilogy... Uh, especially in the first two films. Um, you've spoken about this a little bit in interviews. Um, there's sort of a uh, preoccupation with ugliness, with ugly an ugly environment that sort of, of the, the casinos, the hotels, interiors, the, the toxic waste site um, in, in First Reformed. And, um, and yet, formally, structurally, uh, there's tremendous elegance to the way you, you show these spaces and show the characters moving through them. Is that uh, tension uh, something that is born in the script or is does that come well, more? It, yeah, it comes from this notion I had over 50 years ago, wrote a, a book of theological aesthetics on transcendental style, how to do things sparsely, sparsely rather than uh, abundantly, and how to get the viewer to fill in the space. So, you know, planometric compositions, center punching, uh, you know, spare rooms, uh, you know, production designers take the furniture out of the room and then the set decorators put it back in. So you take it out. You don't need much furniture in a room. You know, there's a scene in First Reform, there's a big room and there's only one chair in it. No one ever said to me, where was the other furniture in that room? <laughs> and you see him in his, uh, the card counter and his apartment, and you say, you know, where's the where's this stuff on the walls? Well, he's in the, he's protecting himself in those sparse spaces from the visual chaos of his purgatory. And um, and so this whole idea that you can do less, and a lot of it has to do with time. I'll just give an example. In traditional editing, 
If someone walks out of a room, the editor will drop the splice just before the door latches. That's a good cut. When I first saw Bresson's pickpocket, I realized that he was holding two beats after the door closed. Door closed, one, two, cut. Now what's happening in those two seconds? Nothing. Oh no, something is happening, it's time. Time is happening. You're just looking at a blank door and time is still running. So then what happens if you hold on the door four seconds? Hold on the door 10 seconds. How long can you hold on that door before the audience gets up and leaves? <laughs> and that's the manipulation of time that you're trying to do to create a sense that something will happen. Something is coming. And these characters they always talk about, you know, I was waiting. They're all waiting, waiting for something. And if you can create that sense of waiting in the viewer, Something is going to happen, trust me, but you're going to wait. Good things happen while you wait. And if I tell you that I'm going to service your need to move the story along, I can't get you to believe in waiting. In The Card Counter, uh, Tell speaks at various points uh, about his reluctance to uh, work with a big money backer. He prefers independence, he prefers control, he prefers anonymity. Uh, and in looking back at the interview that you did in the 70s as a uh, working screenwriter, uh, you touch on sort of a similar framework for thinking about your own work in terms of uh, uh, rejecting the more lucrative paths in some cases in for uh, in exchange for control and independence. And well, I mean, it, it used to be the, the rule of thumb in Hollywood, you know, two for them, one for me. That was if you were lucky. Now, with the new economics of film, you don't necessarily, you know, I've done now three in a row for me, and I'm doing the fourth one this year for me. Uh, so... I can now make films in this budget range that are responsible. Uh, you know, I, I used to say, because this Francis Coppola, who sort of taught all the people in my generation, says, you just believe you're making a film long enough and someone will agree with you. <laughs> and, and I used to say to Literally, I, I was in the, in the old days, in the studio days, I'd say, you know, this is your lucky day. You only care about one thing, making money. I only care about one thing, making money. Let's make some money together. Well, that was a lie. <laughs> and uh, it was a productive lie, and sometimes it was an effective lie. Now I don't have to lie that much anymore. I can say, I will make you whole, which as a good Christian steward is all I need to say. I don't have to make you rich. But if you invest in me, I'll get you your money, and I can now get them their money back with these lower budgets because of the technology involved. Did this perspective, this sort of ethos, inform the character of, of William and his sort of way of moving through the world? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously he's on drugs. The drug is the, 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 the cards. And I first came up 
with this notion I was watching World Series of Poker on TV and I was thinking about people in casinos, you know, who just sit there. You used to, you used to have to pull the lever, you know, you don't even have to pull the lever anymore. Just hour after hour. I said, well, what is it in it for them? I said, well, this is a drug. This is a purgatory. This is a world of having no feelings. You can go into a casino and come out six hours later and nothing has happened. You've just lived in the anesthetic. It's like alcohol or any other drug. I said, what kind of person is so drawn to this? If you're a vibrant male with possibilities and intelligence, why would you be drawn to it? Well, you must be hiding from something. What are you hiding from? And so that's where the idea came from. I think we have time for a couple of audience questions. Uh, if you have a hand uh, question, raise your hand up high. I saw one uh, in the back right there. Yep, keep, keep your hand up. The mic's coming. There you go. Um, you spoke a little bit about the aesthetics that informed your editing decisions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your the, the aesthetics that informed the cinematography uh, direction. Uh, the question about the aesthetic approach to the cinematography? Yeah, in the same way you explained, you know, how Brisson led You're to your You're going to have to talk a little louder. <laughs> the cinematography. Can you talk about it, please? It's good, and I'm curious. I'm a cinematographer. I want to know about it. So just, I guess, your approach to the cinematography, the visual language of the films? Uh, I have made some films that are lush. Cover of Strangers, very, very lush film. Uh, I'm, my personal aesthetic is rather minimalist, you know, um, and that includes uh, visuals as well as well, set design. But you have to be careful because minimalist can't be cheap. You know, smart minimalism smells like smart minimalism. Bad minimalism smells like student film, no budget. <laughs> I see a question right here. There's a mic right behind you. Hello. Uh, so I am from the part of Mississippi where uh, Card Counter was shot. In the Redneck Riviera. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm from Ocean Springs. It's a few uh, miles down the highway from Gulfport and Biloxi where a lot of this is shot. Um, so my question relating to that is um, what is the what is the thematic valence that shooting in the Redneck Riviera gives you in this movie? Well, it has to do with incentives. So it starts with Mississippi. You know, you're looking for a casino city. So is it going to be Atlantic City? Is it going to be Vegas? Uh, going to be the Gulf Coast. Otherwise, you're just in Indian casinos. And so you're looking for incentives and and cost effectiveness. And you just start breaking it down. And, and you get more bang. Uh, we got more bang for the buck in Mississippi than we would have gotten in Vegas. And also uh, because everything was cheaper there. And you know, that's why it's called the Redneck Riviera, because it's cheaper. And uh, so that's where we, we ended up. And uh, 
so even like there's a scene in uh, you, you want to give them a sense that they're traveling around a bit, but we're really basically in blocks in around. So we have a scene at a hotel, and so digitally you put in uh, the homesteader, which sort of suggests Nebraska. But of course, they were still in Mississippi. <laughs> I think we have time for just one more. Um, I see one right here in the middle. Can uh, I think there's a mic right over here? Uh, this this person right here. You can keep your hand up. Um, I was wondering with the card counter and it's like commentary on how the top brass of Abu Ghraib were left um, unpunished by the government. How you felt about Obama putting it on its best of the year list? Well, uh, yeah, Obama did a 10 best list and Card Connor was on it. And uh, first of all, it's kind of amazing that, you know, a person that high up in government has taste. <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, he, he was there when Abu Ghraib was going down. That's what was the most shocking thing, uh, you know, is that... He thought it was a terrific film, but even though it was all, some of it was happening under his watch. Well, I think that's a, a striking note to end on. So <laughs> thank you. And thank you all. <laughs>